0: hello everyone what is up you guys welcome back to another episode of killer instinct if you are new here hi my name is savannah and i am your host of killer instinct before we get started make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button that way you never miss an episode we post weekly here on the podcast every wednesday wherever you get your podcasts and every thursday as well on youtube and you are not going to want to miss it now as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode today we are diving in to another serial killer case and today we are talking about joel rifkin joel rifkin is an american serial killer who is believed to have murdered up to 17 women from the years of 1989 to 1993. so we are going to talk all about it today so let's just jump right on into it Joel Rifkin was born on January 20th, 1959, right in the heart of New York City. Now, Joel was actually adopted. His biological parents were both young college students. His birth mother was about 20 years old, and his birth father was 24 years old. Now, when his biological parents found out that they were pregnant, they knew that they were not in a stage of their lives where they could properly support a child the way that they wanted to. So they decided to put Joel up for adoption. On Valentine's Day of 1959, when Joel was just three weeks old, he actually got adopted by Benjamin and Jeanne Rifkin, a well-off couple who lived in Long Island. Then three years after they adopted Joel, Benjamin and Jeanne also adopted their daughter in 1965 and moved to East Meadow, New York. Now at the time, East Meadow was a very ideal place to live. It was a suburb that consisted of mostly middle and upper class families. Benjamin worked as a structural engineer and sat on the board of trustees at a local library, so he definitely was making a decent amount of money to provide for him and his family. Now, for all things considered, the Rifkin family was very stereotypically normal. They never had any crazy disputes. You know, everyone said that this was a very normal family. Benjamin had a great job. The mom would stay at home and take care of the kids. It, for all things considered, seemed very normal. Now, as a child and growing up, Joel is described by anyone who knew him as a very nice and loving kind of guy, which aren't all serial killers just described as nice and loving. However, Joel and his father, Benjamin, definitely had a lot of tension between the two of them. Benjamin always wanted a son and he was thrilled when he was able to adopt Joel. However, he always had an idea of what he wanted his son to to look like and the type of person he wanted his son to be. He wanted a son that was athletic. He wanted a son that had great social skills and had a lot of friends and was popular and kind of like the stereotypical jock who was also very academically smart. He had very high expectations for Joel, and Joel was really never able to fully meet those expectations. Joel was never really athletic. He never loved sports, and along with that, he was never really a great student either he actually got diagnosed with dyslexia very later on in his life so as a child no one ever knew that he had this and it definitely impacted his academics So now Benjamin is looking at his son who isn't athletically gifted and is not academically thriving. And along with that, Joel didn't have a lot of friends. In fact, he was bullied ruthlessly in school. Joel's classmates would steal his books and his lunches. They would come up behind him in the middle of the hallway and pull his pants down. They also called him turtle because he had a tendency to hunch over, which made kids call him turtle. Kids are just ruthless and they're mean and they definitely saw a target with Joel and picked on him until they really couldn't anymore. Now Joel actually got to a point where he decided that he was going to join the track team. He thought that this would help him have a better relationship with his father because now he was dabbling into athletics and he thought maybe this would be a great way to help him meet some friends. However ultimately after joining the track team the bullying only got worse. His teammates would take Joel and stick his head in the toilet. They would also steal his clothes out of the locker room when Joel was taking a shower. It was like every stereotypical movie bullying scene that you've ever seen on TV was what Joel was experiencing. And he was sick of it. He was exhausted. And as you can imagine, it took a toll on his mental health tremendously. In order to try and, you know, just make friends, he would invite his friends over to drink and watch a football game or any sport that was on TV. And he thought that that would be a way to, you know, open up his social circle. But when that would happen and these friends would come over, these friends weren't interested in actually being friends with Joel. All they saw is a free invitation to drink. And along with that, Joel's dating life was really non-existent as well. And anytime he ever did try and go on a date with a girl, his bullies would get in the way of that too. Or on one occasion, Joel was actually set up by his bullies after he had asked one girl out because his bullies had gotten to the girl and basically told the girl that she was not gonna go on the date with Joel. So when Joel showed up to the date, he instead was egged by his bullies. So he was just getting it left and right Now, luckily for Joel, he ended up graduating from East Meadow High School in 1977. And then after that, he went on to attend three different colleges. He attended Nassau Community College, State University of New York at Brockport, and State University of New York at Farmingdale. Now, the reason that Joel was moving from school to school to school is because he was academically struggling. But regardless of his struggle in academics, Joel was the furthest thing from stupid because he actually had an IQ of an 128 which is well above average. Now even though he wasn't passionate in athletics or in academics, something that Joel really was passionate about was photojournalism. Now, because of his passion for photojournalism, he ended up working as a photographer for the school newspaper at State University of New York at Brockport. And that was something he would really enjoyed doing. Now, after he graduated high school, he ended up working as a landscaper and Joel was dating one girl at Brockport. However, the relationship didn't last because according to this girl, she said that Joel seemed as if he was very depressed. He wasn't making too much money and he really didn't have a lot going for him. He didn't know what his future was going to look like and despite not having enough money he also had no motivation i feel like there's a big difference you can be struggling but you know hustle and have the motivation to go out and want to make a better life for yourself but joel didn't have that he had no motivation to make his life any better even though he hated the life he was living So all throughout college, when Joel wasn't dating this girl, he really didn't have any friends. Again, he didn't have great social skills. He didn't have a social circle. So what he would do is he would take the spare money that he did have, the small amount of spare money that he did have, and he would end up spending it on prostitutes, which ironically enough would be the same type of women that he ended up murdering. Now when Joel was 19 years old his parents ended up finally telling him that he was adopted and while we don't know how they ended up telling him this it was said that due to the fact that Joel was really tormented all throughout high school and now he's being told that he's adopted it really made him question everything and made him feel really alone he never really felt like he had anyone to you know lean on or a support system because everything he felt was true, now felt like it was a lie. Now I'm not saying this so you can like feel bad for Joel Rifkin because he is a horrible human being. However, I think it is important to understand how we get to where we ended up being with Joel. Now, because Joel was feeling very alone in his life, he really ended up having these obsessive fixations on different things. For example, he had a fixation on the Alfred Hitchcock movie called Frenzy. And if you've never heard of it, it is essentially a movie about a serial killer in London who kills his victims by strangling them with a necktie. And through this movie is where his obsession with strangulation really began. And it was also around this time where he was you know, really into this movie that his parents gifted him his first car now with this car came total freedom joel finally felt a sense of you know he could take this car and go wherever he wanted whenever he wanted which was never something that he had felt before he never had that freedom before And when he got this car, he would take the car and go interact with these sex workers and the prostitutes, and that really gave him the kind of golden ticket to be able to go do that with no questions asked. So Joel ended up dropping out of college, actually. After attending three different ones, he ended up dropping out in 1984. So seven years he spent in college, and he just ended up calling it quits. And after he called it quits, he didn't try to get a job, he didn't really try to do any thing the only thing that Joel was interested in was spending his time with sex workers Now in 1986, Joel's father, Benjamin, unfortunately got diagnosed with prostate cancer. And at that time he was also suffering from emphysema, which from my understanding is a lung condition that can cause shortness of breath along with some other things. And the pain became too much for Benjamin to bear. And he ultimately decided to end his own life by overdosing on pills in February of 1987. So just one year after he got diagnosed with prostate cancer and he was actually in a coma for four days before he ended up passing away. Now, even though Joel and his father never really had a great relationship, that was still his dad. And so despite the fact that they always, you know, were arguing or never really saw eye to eye, Joel's father was now gone. And that really only heightened Joel's depression. However, shortly after Benjamin passed away, Joel actually ended up attending the State College of Technology in New York for a two-year program. And unlike the past where Joel had been failing in academics, when he went to this institute, he was actually thriving and he was doing so well. He was getting straight A's, which is not something he had ever experienced before and because of those straight A's, it resulted in him being chosen for an internship at Planting Fields Arboretum. and while he was there, he met another female intern that sparked his interest and he kind of created this fantasy in his head that he believed to be Reality, You know, he liked her so much and would fantasize about her so much that he almost believed that everything she would do was to also prove that she liked him too. And so anything she said, anything she did, Joel would twist it in his mind to be like, oh, she's doing this or she's saying this because she really likes me and she wants to show me instead of actually tell me. However, after a while, when Joel realized that this fixation was all in his head and that this female intern was actually not reciprocating the feelings that he had he grew very frustrated it was kind of another way again for joel to realize that he was never going to be accepted or in his mind accepted into like real life and he was never going to be able to get a real girlfriend it was all in his head and it was at this time when all this frustration was boiling up for him that he really started fixating on violence murder, and again, prostitution. Now, Joel's first arrest came on August 22nd, 1987 in Long Island for soliciting a prostitute. And this was just a couple months after his father had died. And he hid this arrest from the rest of his family. It actually turned out that the woman he was trying to solicit sex from was an undercover police officer. Now, even though Joel would go back to these sex workers time and time and time again, he did not have the greatest track record with them. There would be many times where Joel would solicit sex from a prostitute. However, he would either get robbed or whoever was, you know, pimping out the prostitute would rob Joel. There were multiple instances of that. So, because of that, Joel grew a frustration on prostitutes. So before he would go to prostitutes kind of as his escape, it was the one way for him to get that female interaction that he wasn't getting in real life. But now these prostitutes are now turning on him again, and he's feeling that same sort of targeting and bullying that he felt all throughout school, and it triggered something in Joel. But instead of being you know, a young school kid who's getting bullied, Joel is now an adult and also has fixation and obsession on murder. It was at this time that Joel became obsessed with serial killers, and more specifically, serial killers that targeted prostitutes. He would actually read the newspaper and cut out newspaper articles that pertained to serial killers killing prostitutes, that pertained to strangulation, and he collected pieces about Arthur Shawcross and the Green River Killer. He told everyone that he was just interested in studying them. However, he was actually preparing himself to copy them. Now in 1989, Joel was really hitting a wall financially. He was moving in and out of his parents' house. He had no money. So what did he decide to do to take out his frustration about everything that was going wrong in his life? He decided to murder his first victim. So now what we're gonna do is we are going to go through each of Joel's known victims and it is a long list, so bear with me, but we're gonna go through each one individually, so let's jump into it. Joel Rifkin's first known victim was 25-year-old Heidi Balch who also went by her nickname, Susie. Now she is believed to be Joel's first victim. However, she wouldn't actually be identified until decades later. Now, what happened to Susie is actually all from just Joel's recollection, and that's what a lot of this is based off of, so keep that in mind while we're recounting all of this. However, according to Joel, Susie was a drug addict and prostitute working in Manhattan at the time. When Joel's mother was out of town, Joel drove out to New York City in 1989 and picked up Susie before driving her back to his mother's home. However, before they got there, they made several stops to purchase drugs on their way now once they got to joel's mom's house the two of them stayed for the night and had sex however things soon took a turn for the worst when joel took out his years of rage and anger on her. He bashed her head with a howitzer artillery shell, and for those who don't know, because I certainly didn't, that's basically a large device that is used to contain explosives, and it is used in the military. Now, Joel's parents had it as a souvenir in their home, but Joel used it as a weapon. Joel said that he hit her repeatedly until he was too tired to continue, and at that point he thought that she was dead, so he tried moving her body. However, to his surprise, Susie was still alive. She bit his finger severely, and that caused Joel to strangle her to death and then put her body in a trash bag. After that, he then cleaned up the living room that was filled with blood before laying down to go to sleep while Susie's body was still in the trash bag. When he woke up, he dragged her to the basement and laid her body across the washing machine. Then, using a knife, he dismembered her body and used pliers to remove her teeth, that way dental records would not be able to identify her. He then cut off her fingertips in order to remove any identification from her on that side as well, and then he continued to dismember her piece by piece before placing each of her body parts in a trash bag. He drove to New Jersey and put her legs and head in a wooded area near a golf course, and then drove to Manhattan, where he tossed the rest of her body into the East River. Now, a few decades later, a man that was playing golf at the Hopewell Valley Golf Club discovered her head when he was walking through the wooded area just to look for a golf ball. Now police were called and when they arrived at the scene and collected the remains, they weren't able to identify Susie right away. Susie actually wasn't going to be identified until 24 years after her murder. She wasn't identified until March of 2013, and police made a reconstruction of her head and compared it to a mugshot taken of Heidi Balch. And after that had happened, and police looked at the similarities between the mugshot and the reconstruction, Susie's parents were called and asked to send in their DNA, which ultimately was a match. And that is how they were able to identify Susie. Now, Joel's second murder was a woman named Julie Blackbird in 1990. Joel sought out Julie because he thought she looked like Madonna. And similar to Susie, Julie was also a sex worker. And this also happened while Joel's mother was out of town. Joel took Julie back to the house where they slept together and spent the night. And then the next morning, Joel beat her over the head with a wooden table leg and then strangled her to death. Now, Joel did admit to having thoughts of having sex with her dead body. However, he said that would be too much for him. Joel left Julie's dead body in the house while he went out and bought a mortar pan and some cement. He then came back, dismembered her body similar to Susie's, and put her head, legs, and arms in buckets and filled them up with cement before putting her torso in a milk crate and filled that up with cement as well joel then threw the torso and head in the east river of manhattan and threw the rest of her body parts into a canal in brooklyn and her remains to this day have never been found however police found her diary in joel rifkin's home as part of his trophy collection and that is how they were able to figure out that she was also one of joel's victims Joel's next known victim was a woman named Barbara Jacobs. On the night of July 13th, 1991, Barbara was working as a sex worker, and same MO as before, Joel picked her up, took him back to his house. They slept together and spent the night, and while Barbara was sleeping, Joel picked up the same weapon that he killed Julie with and struck her over the head before strangling her to death. Now at this point, Joel said in his killings that he did not want to continue dismembering people. It was just too gruesome for him. Everything else was fine, but the dismembering, that's too far. So instead of dismembering her, he ended up wrapping her body in plastic and put her in a large cardboard box. He then put her in the back of his mom's pickup truck and drove to the Hudson River where he dropped the box into the water before driving back home. However, it would only be hours before Barbara's remains were discovered. And at first, her cause of death was actually labeled to be an overdose, which is wild because how is she putting herself in plastic wrap in in a cardboard box. So for years, her death was labeled as an overdose. However, it wasn't until Joel was arrested that he actually took blame for Barbara's death. Joel's next victim was 22-year-old Mary Ellen DeLuca, she met joel on september 1st 1991 and she was also into the drug scene and joel told her that he would help her get drugs if she went with him that was kind of his you know alluring tactic he would always go for these women who were very much addicted to drugs and he would tell them you know if you come with me i'll help you get drugs we'll go here we'll go here wherever you want to go we will get drugs i will pay for them it'll be all set. And so obviously these women are enticed by this offer and they go with him. And that's exactly what happened here. Now, similar to Susie, they stopped at several places until sunrise, picking up drugs before going to a motel together. Now, Mary wasn't really interested in sleeping with Joel until she got her fix on drugs. However, at this point, Joel had spent about $150 buying her what she wanted, so the two did end up having sex, but according to Joel, she just didn't seem into it. She was complaining and tried to rush it, which only made Joel more angry. Joel said at that point, he asked mary if she wanted to die and according to him she said yes he then began strangling her and according to joel he said that she did not fight it joel said that this was a weird murder for him because he felt like he was almost doing mary a favor Now, for Mary's murder, Joel was actually faced with a problem he had never dealt with before, which was how was he going to get Mary's body out of a motel without anyone noticing in daylight. All of his murders prior to this had all been done at his own house, so he was kind of, you know, in his own territory. He didn't feel pressured by it, but now he was faced with a big challenge. So while Joel was thinking, he actually remembered one of the scenes from that movie that he really liked, that Frenzy movie. So he went out and purchased a trunk to essentially put Mary's body in. So he went out, bought the trunk, came back, put Mary's body inside, and then drove out to Orange County. Now, when they went out to Orange County, they pulled over to a rest stop, and Joel simply just left the trunk at rest stop and at this point it's very clear that joel stopped being concerned about the possibility that he could be caught for this you know he wasn't really trying to hide bodies anymore you know for his first two he definitely felt more pressure of having to conceal the bodies very well but at this point he realized that he's been getting away with this so he doesn't really have to try that hard to keep hiding the bodies and along with that the care and the desire to hide them really well so no one will ever find them has kind of gone away Now, weirdly enough, even though this trunk was just left in this rest stop in the open public, Mary's remains weren't discovered until one month later. And because of that, decomposition had already taken its toll. And so because of that, the coroner could not determine a cause of death. And she actually wouldn't even be identified until 1993 because of it. Victim number five was Yun Lee. Yun was a 31-year-old prostitute that Joel had actually picked up on multiple occasions, so she was familiar with Joel. Now, because she was familiar and never had any problem with him, Yun went with Joel willingly, and she was actually his second prostitute that night. However, when it came down to having sex, Joel was actually having trouble performing. So as a result of that, he ended up striking Yun over the head and strangling her. Now, this be the first time that Joel murdered someone that he had met before because all of his other murders were same night kills, essentially. He used the same trunk method that he did with Mary. He put her body in the trunk. However, he threw her into the East River and her remains were discovered on September 23rd of 1991. Now, the next victim that Joel recalls is actually a Jane Doe still to this day. Now, Joel says that he does not remember what this woman's name was. However, on Christmas Eve of 1991, he picked her up on West 46th Street in Manhattan. Now, Joel remembers picking this woman up, taking her to a parking lot and having sex with her, and in the middle of it, he ended up strangling her to death. Now, at the time that she had actually died, Joel then placed her body at the feet of the passenger seat, so you know where your feet sit when you sit in a car, that little space. That's where Joel stuffed her entire body into. He left her there for a few hours before driving her to a recycling plant that he used to work at and ended up putting her body in a 55-gallon drum. He then took that drum to a junkyard in South Bronx and rolled the drum into the East River. Now, crazy enough, while Joel was actually leaving the scene, so after he had rolled the drum into the river, he was actually stopped by police officers who were wondering, you know, what he was doing. And Joel was actually able to convince them that he was collecting trash out of this junkyard and not adding to the dump itself. And so, because of that, he was given a warning and then let go. So then we have 28 year old Lorraine Orvieto and Lorraine suffered from manic depression and used cocaine as her mood stabilizer instead of medication. On December 26th, 1991, Joel promised her cocaine in exchange for sex and she agreed. The two of them then drove to a nearby school and Joel parked his car next to a fence and in the middle of the two of them having sex, Joel strangled her again. Now Joel actually learned very quickly that she was HIV positive because she had HIV medicine on her and because of that, Joel decided to keep the medication as well as her jewelry and ID as trophies for her murder. He then drove back to the recycling facility and grabbed another oil drum and placed her body in it and dropped it into the cone island creek it was found several months later on july 11, 1992 but at that point no one had ever even reported lorraine missing and it wouldn't be for another two months after her body was recovered that anyone would even report her missing so she went missing on december 26 1991 and wasn't even reported missing until september of 1992 Then, just one week after Joel killed Lorraine, he moved on to his next victim, Mary Ann Holman. Now, Mary and Joel crossed paths on January 2nd, 1992. Mary was 39 years old, making her Joel's oldest victim. After Joel picked up Mary, he took her to the same parking lot that he took Yun Lee, and again strangled her to death during sex he then drove her body back to long island and shoved her into an oil drum before dumping her in the coney island creek again Her body was found on July 9th, 1992 after a report from an anonymous caller and she was identified through dental records. Two days after her body had been found, Lorraine's remains were also discovered. Now at this point, police thought that maybe they could potentially be dealing with a serial killer. However, because of the amount of sex workers that unfortunately get murdered every year, there really was no telling on whether or not this was a serial killer or if these were just individual murders before we move on any further we're going to take a minute and thank our sponsors for today's video imagine an app designed to make you use it less seems a little counterproductive right Now, Joel's ninth victim was also a Jane Doe and still is to this day. Now, the MO was the same. Joel placed her in an oil drum and dropped it into Newtown Creek in Brooklyn. And the drum was discovered on May 13th, 1992, floating with the current, and someone could see that there was a foot protruding from the drum. When an autopsy was performed, it found that there was a large amount of cocaine in her system, which again, made police believe that this was an overdose. Now, the next victim, victim number 10, was Iris Sanchez. In April 1992, Joel decided that he wasn't going to work one day, and he decided instead to go out looking for his next victim, and that is when he found Iris. She was 25 years old at the time and working on First Avenue. After picking up Iris, he drove her to a housing project in Manhattan, and after the two slept together, he strangled her and then drove across the Brooklyn Bridge with her body, looking for somewhere to dispose of her which is when he found an illegal dump located right off of Rockway Boulevard. After taking her jewelry, he placed her beneath a mattress at the dump and her body actually wouldn't even be discovered until after Joel was arrested and he drew a map for detectives as to where she was located. Then, fast forward to the next month, May 25th, 1992, mother of three, Anna Lopez, was working on Atlantic Avenue in Queens. Joel approached Anna and she got in his car. Joel then strangled her and drove all throughout the night to find somewhere to put her body, which is when he drove to Brewster, Putnam County and dumped her body inside the I-84 freeway, and she was found the next day joel's next victim was a woman named violet O'Neill. joel actually treated 21 year old violet as he did when he first began his killings he took her back to his house that he shared with his mother and after they had sex he strangled her before putting her in the bathtub and dismembering her body something he had not done for quite a while he then used black plastic wrap to wrap up her torso and her limbs were put into a suitcase and all of her body parts were tossed into the hudson river Just to be clear, the body parts weren't like freely tossed into the Hudson. They were placed in the suitcase and then tossed into the Hudson River. Then we have his next victim, Mary Catherine Williams. Mary grew up as a cheerleader at college and was the homecoming queen. She moved to New York following her divorce and tried to start an acting career, however, she ultimately ended up being addicted to drugs and homeless, working as a sex worker. Mary and Joel had again seen each other on multiple occasions, so when he pulled up on October 2nd, 1992, she didn't hesitate to get into his car. He bought her drugs, and when she fell asleep in the car, he strangled her. However, Mary woke up. She started fighting Joel. However, he overpowered her and smothered her to death. He then drove her to Yorktown, Westchester, where he left her there. However, he did manage to take her purse, credit cards, and a large amount of jewelry she had in her purse. Her body was discovered on December 21st, and she also remained unidentified until Joel confessed. Then we get to Jenny Soto of 1992. Jenny was 23 and addicted to drugs. She had tried to go detox several times. However, she was never able to fully kick her addiction. On November 16th, she was working the streets near the Williamsburg Bridge and Joel pulled up and she got in his car. Joel and Jenny had sex in his car, and then he tried to strangle her. However, Jenny put up probably the biggest fight that Joel had ever experienced. Joel even admitted that she was the toughest to kill. She broke every one of her fingernails, trying to claw against his face and neck. However, ultimately, Joel won. He kept her ID cards, earrings, underwear, and drug syringes as trophies, and then rolled her body into the Harlem River. Jenny's body was found the next day, and because of the marks that Jenny left on Joel, he was definitely shaken up a little bit and waited 15 weeks until he struck again. On February 27, 1993, Joel came across 28-year-old Leah Evans. Leah and Joel drove to an abandoned parking lot. However, once they got there, Leah said that she wanted to go somewhere more private. Joel refused and instead strangled her he then drove her to a wooded area in long island and buried her in a shallow grave leah was actually the only victim that joel ever buried and her body was found a couple months later on may 9th 1993. Lauren Marquez was his next victim, and she had recently moved to New York from Tennessee. And on April 2nd, 1993, she was working on 2nd Avenue. Joel drove her to the Manhattan Bridge, and he began strangling her and ultimately broke her neck. Her body was disposed in Suffolk County. So now we are at Joel's last victim. I told you guys, it was a long list. But now we are at his last known victim, and that is Tiffany Breschiani. Now, Tiffany was from Louisiana, and she moved to New York with the hopes of being an actor or a dancer, however, she unfortunately succumbed to the addiction of heroin instead. On June 24th, 1993, Joel picked up Tiffany, his fourth sex worker in two days and his second one of the night. He drove her to the parking lot of the New York Post and strangled her to death. He left her body in the backseat of the car and drove back to his home, stopping to buy rope and tarpaulin to dispose of the body along the way. Now, by the time Joel got home, Tiffany's body had been wrapped up and tied and placed into the trunk of his car. Now, this actually wasn't Joel's car, it was his mother. Now, what's crazy here is when Joel got home, Joel's mother demanded that she used her car. Now, Joel did not have time to move Tiffany's body from the trunk of the car to the home or another location where his mother wouldn't find out. So he literally just had to give his mother the keys and hope and pray that she would not look in that trunk. And luckily, she didn't. Once she returned back from shopping, Joel then took Tiffany's body and placed it in the garage and left her in a wheelbarrow in the garage. And she stayed there for three days until ultimately he decided to take the body and load it into his pickup truck. His plan was to dump it near Melville's Republic Airport, which was about 15 miles away from his house. However, on his way there, he was pulled over by a state trooper. The state troopers pulled over Joel because he had no license plates on his truck, however, when they tried to pull Joel over, he refused to stop, which is obviously not going to make them stop chasing you. It's only gonna make it worse, but you know, you don't think about that in the moment. So, this caused a police chase, and this went on for about 20 minutes before ultimately Joel crashed his truck into a utility pole. Police approached the car and ordered for Joel to get out, which is when they ultimately arrested him, not knowing what they were about to find. Police quickly noticed the awful smell coming from Joel's truck, and when they opened the door, they found Tiffany's body wrapped in blue tarpaulin, and Joel was caught. Now, when authorities found the body, Joel was very quick to confess. I mean, clearly he was guilty. He had the body in the back of his trunk, but he didn't try to give them the runaround. He was very forthcoming. He told them that he picked Tiffany up near the Williamsburg Bridge and strangled her then hid her body there for three days and was on the way to the Republic Airport to dispose of her. Joel was taken into custody and interrogated for eight hours, and that is where he confessed to the 17 murders, and he did not hold anything back. He told the police about each murder one at a time, and then he wrote down the names, dates, and locations of his victims. Now, police knew that they needed to go look at Joel's house, which he shared with his mother. And when police arrived, they told Joel's mom that he had been detained for a crime, but wouldn't say what crime that was. Police looked in Joel's room and found numerous items belonging to the women, including prescription medicines with their names on it. And authorities also found multiple serial killer books. Now in the garage of the house, authorities found three ounces of human blood and multiple tools that were covered in blood. Now, Joel Rifkin actually went on trial for the murder of Tiffany Bresciani. And in November, 1993, the hearing began. And several weeks into it, the prosecution offered Joel a plea deal. Now, this plea deal was that if Joel pled guilty for the 17 murders, he would be offered 46 years to life. So the death penalty would be off the table. However, Joel, that he would be able to get away with all of this by pleading insanity. So he actually denied that offer. And the trial began on April 11th, 1994, which is really crazy because I'm actually filming this on April 11th, 2022. Now, Joel pled not guilty by the reason of temporary insanity. And there were five men and seven women on this jury. On May 9th, 1994, the jury deliberated briefly before ultimately finding Joel guilty of murder and reckless endangerment. Joel was sentenced to 25 years to life for the murder and up to seven for reckless endangerment. And remember, this was just for the murder of Tiffany. He then had to go on trial for the murders of Lauren Marquez and Leah Evans. Now in this trial, the defense had used the excuse that Joel had something called adopted child syndrome, which caused him to have an overwhelming amount of trauma and made him mentally ill. Now it's important to note that adoptive child syndrome does not affect all all adopted children obviously and it is actually a very small percentage who have the disorder now the basis of the syndrome is that adoptive children have a deep sense of abandonment and loss which causes them to have anger depression and just not handle rejection well in general Now, 16% of serial killers were actually adopted as children. So that's just an interesting fact for you to have there. But Joel did not have adoptive child syndrome. This was just purely an excuse to try and feed into this temporary insanity plea that he was trying to play up. Now, the trial was in October, and just one month before the trial was supposed to begin, Joel actually pled guilty to the murders of Lauren and Leah, and he was given 25 years to life for each murder. So now you have him guilty for the murder of Tiffany, Lauren, and Leah, and he's getting at least 25 for each of those murders. So now you have 75 years to life. Now, the last trial took place two years after the first, and this one was for the murder of Iris Sanchez. And during this trial, Joel actually spoke to the family and said, quote, You all think I am nothing but a monster, and you are right. Part of me must be. I want you to know I am sorry for what I have done to you and your daughters. I will go to my grave carrying the deaths of these innocent women with me. Some of you believe that I felt their murder was in some way justified because they were prostitutes, but this is untrue. I never felt that way. Some of them were my friends and were kind to me. My victims were people with dreams and families. Some of them had children of their own. What I have done can never be forgiven, but I ask you to believe me when I tell you I will never understand the part of me that caused me to do the terrible things to your children. Please believe me that there are other Joel Rifkins walking your streets right now. Like me, they will eventually be caught, but not until they have caused more suffering and deaths. I hope society can prevent this." End quote. Now, in total, Joel was convicted of only nine of the 17 murders that he confessed to, and it received a 203-year prison sentence. So he will never get out of prison. He is currently 63 years old and is serving his time at the Clinton Correctional Facility, and he is not eligible for parole until 2197 at the age of 238. So safe to say he will die in prison and this is really a crazy case when you think about it and it's just so sad that part of the reason that police didn't you know raise suspicion about this is because of the stigma that comes with sex workers and how you know they are so easily killed in this world they're one of the main targets just because people have this idea that no one's going to miss them or no one's going to care if they're gone and because of that police were really stuck with knowing whether or not this was something worth investigating because they didn't know if they had a serial killer on their hands or if they had, you know, these just individual murders. And that just goes to show how frequent those murders happen. So I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about this one. And with that being said, you guys, that is all from me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Again, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday. And then again, every Thursday on YouTube as well. You're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye, guys.